actually, it's exactly what I wanted to talk to you about. What is it, Joel? Well, I I've been discussing your case with some andrologists back east. Now, these are specialists in the field, and we all find this rather compelling. I mean, you're diagnosed as sterile, and then you sire a child. It's, uh, you know, it's a confusing situation. Yes, it is. Well, with your cooperation, I I'd like to explore your case a little further. Well, I appreciate that, Joel. Excellent. That's exactly what I was hoping you were going to say. Now, um, first thing we're going to need is a sample. Come again? No, once will be sufficient. That's Dr. Joel Fleischman with the double entendre up top for this episode. Uh, yeah, this, this little soundbite sort of illustrates a major question in this episode. And, you know, the title of the episode, The Bad Seed, also referring to uh, this idea that maybe Hauling Vincour has a child. Yeah, it's alluding to his child being a bad seed, quote-unquote. Though, I have to say, if you grew up without a father figure, then it's not, you know, it's not a surprise that she ended up this way. I mean, it's kind of his fault that she is this way. I mean, then we, we're getting into, like, nature versus nurture territory, but, but yeah, no, that is definitely brought up in, in the episode. Uh, I think Shelly uh, definitely brings it up. Maybe, I, for instance, I know Shelly is, like, she says, you know, I can only imagine what it was like Jackie all alone when she was a little girl without a father. So, so Charles, what are we talking about? Okay, so we're talking about Northern Exposure. 1990s CBS television sitcom ran for a couple of seasons. My name is Charles, and this is my co-host, Lee. Yes, my name is Lee, and uh, I'm a big fan of Northern Exposure. Charles, this is your first time watching every episode. Yeah, th did you already say this is the Northern Overexposure podcast? We overanalyze the show. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, yeah. <laughs> Wait, did we say <laughs> no, that? No, I did not. Uh, go I ahead did and not go, say that. Go ahead and give them the, uh, we got some, some brand spanking new social media handles. Yeah, so if you want to follow us, the Northern Overexposure podcast, you can find us at Northern Overpod. On Twitter, and we've got a Patreon, patreon.com slash Northern Overexposure podcast, where we do uh, bonus episodes I bet uh, at the time of this release, this month's bonus episode is uh, Ted Lasso, the Apple TV Plus television series. Oh, yeah. Such a good television series. And you can hear me and Lee praise that show if you subscribe to the Patreon. Thank you so much. And also, if you do subscribe, we will send you a postcard. Yeah, everybody gets a postcard if you, uh, if you support us on Patreon. We like to write a quote or doodle something. And also, I do want to say Ted Lasso, surprisingly similar in a lot of ways. I mean, very different, but surprisingly similar in some ways to Northern Exposure. I guess that's why we, we chose to talk about it. Yeah, fish out of water. That will never grow old. You will get to the year 2130, <laughs> and you're still yeah. going to make television shows. We're like, I'm the only human on Mars, and I'm living among Martians. Like, how do I get a date? <laughs> what is that? It's like they say there's only... X number of stories, you know, like seven stories. All, all all stories are just the same seven stories or something. One of those thought, has got to be fish out of water. Oh, go ahead. I, I thought the saying was that all stories originate with Shakespeare, but that not that I'm saying it out loud. That doesn't make any sense because there were stories before Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah. Uh, though I guess, you know, he's a pioneer in a way. Anyway, we're talking about Northern Exposure. We already mentioned this episode is titled The Bad Seed. It was the seventh episode in the fourth season, the air date being November 16th, 1992. And uh, just some little trivia about this episode. I think it's important to mention the credit. Um, the director of this episode is a, is a man named Randall Miller. And I don't know if this sounds familiar to you, but uh, he 
pled guilty to involuntary manslaughter. This is, uh, if you'll remember, in 2015, the death of uh, camera assistant Sarah Jones on the set of this uh, unreleased movie now, Midnight Rider. Uh, it was, you know, his film uh, that put a lot of crew members in danger and, you know, cost the life of this uh, camera assistant whose death spearheaded sort of a movement for better safety, like not not cutting corners on these like low budget films and throwing safety out, out the window. Oh, man. Uh, I had heard about that with Edward Norton's film. I think it was called Motherless Brooklyn, where I think cast members and crew members were getting injured left and right. Ooh. So, yeah, I did hear about that also. Yeah. Ah, uh, geez. But is, is he uh is he locked up for good? Like no, no, no. So he life? served a year, um, and he's currently doing nine years of probation. Uh, but he's already violated that. You know, he went to let's see, he went to Serbia, London, and Colombia while on probation, and he was shooting this movie Higher Grounds. So, dude. Oh, so, by the way, his probation was like you could you basically. You know, you get one year of prison and you can just never make a movie again. But wait, he, what? That's violating. his punishment? Uh, yeah. And also um, he violated that, you know, so hopefully there'll be some justice for Sarah Jones. And I feel like there's so many ways around that to be like, you can no longer make any movies. It's like, OK, cool. Well, I'll be like the assistant, assistant, assistant. Right. Producer, and I think that and then be like, I'm not actually making the movie. <laughs> I think like, that's kind of what his. M.O. was for this movie, Higher Grounds, but it was pretty clear that he was directing it. So violation of that. Um, I guess we should also mention he is the first film director in history to be convicted in the U.S. for the death of a cast or crew member, which, you know, you were just talking about Motherless Brooklyn. Um, the Twilight Zone movie had a pretty careless, pretty crazy you know, lo loss of lives in, in that helicopter scene. Uh, it's a very long history about that but i know steven spielberg max landis were brought to court though I, I guess they never um were convicted i actually heard about that and i heard that spielberg actually puts his cast members in really dangerous situations where he wants to make the shot look as authentic as possible so they'll actually be in those situations that i've heard yeah i mean well who knows but uh you know making movies can be very dangerous that's why there's such a safety protocol that should be in place. So we like to believe that on some of these bigger Hollywood pictures, they uh, they like to they they have someone enforcing that. On a similar note, I saw that the third Jurassic World film just completed filming, and it went through like millions of protocols and hundreds of thousands of COVID tests. And all I could think to myself was like, was this really necessary? In today's age, it was like, we have to get the Jurassic World third film. The people need this. <laughs> yeah, it's like, this is so hard to make a movie. And now with coronavirus, it's, uh, yeah, it's like, do we really need that? I mean, hey, man, that's, there's a lot of money in movies. And I guess they need to try to make up something. Um, we can't, and, you know, we don't want to, I'm not saying that Jurassic World is art, but, you know, we don't want to give up on art. <laughs> um, okay. We've gone on a bit of a tangent. Let's, let's get back to the bad seed. So also, you know, directed by Randall Miller, who we just talked about, it was written by Mitchell Burgess, who, uh, you know, is the, you know, husband, I guess, partner of Robin Green. Uh, they're sort of like producers of the Sopranos. They often work together 
in Northern Exposure, you know, writing and producing. But uh, this is an episode that was solely written just by Mitchell. Oh, okay. I got to say, uh, up top, I am not a huge fan of this episode. And, we can, and we're going to get into this later on, but I just wanted to preface that by saying I, I don't know how you feel about this episode, Lee. That's fair. That's fair. This is, um, for me, this is uh, one of those episodes that reminded me what, I don't know, the feeling of just kind of watching Northern Exposure. I, I love the show. It's not one of my favorites, but... Um, Hey, it doesn't have Mike Monroe. That's sort of like the first episode since he's been introduced to not feature this new um, supporting character. Mm, yeah, you're right. I can't really say whether that subtracts or adds to this episode. I just want to say that, <laughs> I mean, I, I felt like we, I didn't need this episode and Northern Exposure could have oh. just kept existing. Like I, yeah. I don't get a lot of great character development. Um, the characters being introduced, I don't really care for. So yeah, there's one scene we're going to, I guess it'll be jumping around, but there's a scene that really felt like classic Northern exposure, but it was just one scene in the episode. It was the one when like Marilyn and Marilyn's mom, who's a new character introduced in this episode, we'll talk about, but it's uh Marilyn and her mom and Joel and Maggie sort of like, uh, having dinner together. And Joel is just kind of like talking on and on kind of non sequitur. I think it's mainly because, you know, Marilyn is so quiet. Her mother is very much like, you know, like Marilyn. So no one's really talking. It feels like Joel needs to fill the space. So he just keeps talking kind of non sequitur. But I thought, it, I don't know, it reminded me of uh, early season, like Joel and, and Maggie's kind of there just smirking at him, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I think that is a, a pretty great scene right there. Um, do you want to get into the episode? Yeah, let's see. Where where should we start? I guess, should we pick up with the, like, the major, the main A plot? Yeah, let's go with Holling's plot and his apparently newfound daughter. Right, so the way the episode opens is uh, Shelly and Chris, I think, are talking about cranes that are going to fly in. That's That's not the A plot, but... Uh, as they're chatting about these cranes that are flying over Sicily, the new, this new character, Jackie enters. I do want to mention Chris orders what Shelly calls a bird in a basket, which looks like fried chicken. And he asks for jerk sauce. So some jerk, jerk chicken, fried chicken. Uh, I was, th I was thinking about this. Like, what is the best? Cause fried chicken's so good on its own. Like what's your go-to topping sauce? If you had to, if you had to go with like a like a barbecue, what are you reaching for? Uh, okay, so if I'm going to really reach for the answer on this, I guess it would be cheese because have you ever had one of those like KFC bowls? Oh, I Like mashed potato but, yeah. and uh, they, they <laughs> put the little pieces of chicken into it and cheese and then they just uh, yeah. do an amalgamation. Uh, oh, gosh. Hang on. Let me find it. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. See, see what you can find. Oh my god, that reminds me from one of my uh, favorite comedy bits. It's from Patton Oswalt. It's from his album Werewolves and Lollipops. And it begins like right off the top of the album where he goes like, oh man, I'm so tired. Uh, wh wh what can I get here at KFC? It's like, well, we got this delicious fried chicken. You know, we, we got the secret sauce for it, secret recipe. It's great. Oh, you gotta have the mashed potatoes. So creamy buttery and the corn just pops right off the tongue okay 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 stop right there can you pile all of those items <laughs> into a single bowl just kind of make them into a wet mound of starch so that i can eat with a spoon like i'm a death row prisoner on suicide watch could i just have that instead uh yeah 
we, we can do that. We can also arrange those on a plate like you're an adult with dignity and self-respect. <laughs> you don't actually have to eat your food out of a single bowl. F*** that. I'm done. I don't give a sh Just pile all those things in a bowl. Is there a <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That, what is the name of that menu item? Is it just like, it's just like the bowl or the bucket or something? It's called the KFC Famous Bowl. Nice. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't even have a name. It's called the Famous Bowl. Uh, so if you had to put something on fried chicken, I guess it would be cheese. <laughs> well, you need the taters. You need the corn. You got to get it all mashed together. You got to get all the fixings. I see. Uh, anyway, so, um, yeah, so this lady walks in during this conversation and asks for change. You know, she asks Shelly to change a, you know, give her four quarters for the jukebox. And she, you know, sh she gives Shelly a 20. Chris is not really involved in this conversation, but he's kind of watching on the sidelines and notices how she's kind of playing a fast one. You know, she, uh, what exactly does she do? She, I don't know. She kind of like goes back and forth and is like, oh wait, no, I found the quarters. I don't need the change anymore here. Give me my 20 back. And, um, yeah. Yeah, she's kind of like playing a shell game of sorts where you, you're <laughs> trying to confuse them where like your eyes are yeah. focused on one direction and the sleight of hand is being performed. And I like that it's Chris that's pointing it out, like finding out that she's tricking them because Chris is probably, you know, he's probably knowledgeable about all these scams. He, you know, he ran a, um, what do you call that? He's straight from the path. You know, he would know a little bit about the dirty tricks. Yeah, he's got he's got a sort of a criminal background. Uh maybe a long time ago, but so this lady says she's looking for hauling. Uh, she says her name is Jackie Vancour. I think it's pretty cool. Cause it kind of likes that, you know, saying that last name kind of stops Shelly and Chris, both Shelly says that's hauling's name. And Jackie says, what a coincidence. I'm his daughter. And then we go boom into the, uh, opening title music. Yeah. So they kind of grab a drink at the bar. They're comparing documentation and Val, what is her name? Valerie? Um, did I say Valerie? Uh, it's Jackie, but the actress's name is Valerie Perrin. That's probably yeah, that's why right. I said Valerie. I keep getting it mixed up myself. Yeah. By the way, I would say Valerie Perrin is, uh, you know, a pretty acclaimed actress. She was in, uh, I think one of her breakout roles was the film Lenny. Um, and yeah, also her, her Wikipedia says she was the first actress to appear nude on American television. It was a PBS broadcast of a, I guess, a play called Steam Bath. But hmm. interesting trivia. Yeah. So we have Jackie comparing documentations with Holling, and it turns out that he had met a woman many years ago named Patrice. Uh, presumably they had a good time. And uh, on the note, she thought that Holling had died in an avalanche, and I can't tell if she genuinely believed that or if Holling lied to her in order to, you know, get her off his back. Yeah. Or maybe it's like one of those things where, you know, single mother who the father either like walks out on the family, uh, will invent a story like, Oh, your dad's in prison or, or no, sorry. It's like, instead of your dad being in prison, it's like, no, your dad was hit by a bus and he died. That's why you don't know your dad. Uh, so maybe it was a fabricated story in this case because hauling disappeared or they never reconnected. So, um, growing up, I guess the mom, Patrice uh, had to tell Jackie that Holling died in an avalanche. That's that's kind of what I'm feeling from this. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense then. So you're talking about like the papers and stuff that they, um, you know, Jackie brings out and kind of shows to Holling. 
Uh, it's like a, I think it's a birth certificate and it's like letters, like you said, um, that sort of indicate, you know, Patrice and Holling being together. But uh, we get a quick glance at them and I think Jackie says, is like, I got to go to the bathroom. Um, and she quickly snatches the papers up. So like, I don't know, it was a little suspicious for me. Like I've seen this episode before, so I know that, you know, this is, this is Holling's daughter. But um, at first you could maybe believe that she's trying to pull a trick because we don't really, I don't think Holling gets to look at those papers very long. Yeah, that's what I thought too. I thought that by the end of the episode, it would be exposed that uh, she wasn't his daughter. But then I kept thinking about it as I kept watching the episode thinking like, well, how, how would they trick all these uh, tests that are doing genetically? Like that doesn't, right? Yeah, that would be such an anomaly. I, I guess I just have to accept the fact that she's his daughter. Yeah, and you know, speaking of the tests and stuff, I think shortly after this in the plot line, Holling claims that he's sterile. Um, I think it's he's in Joel's office and they're talking about it. it's like this. This is impossible. And I think so. First, Joel says, "Yeah, I mean, it's pretty obvious. Like the blood type matches. There's there's some other tests that were run. It's like." you know, a 99% confirmed, you know, this is like, like, uh, this is proof in court, you know, like this, this stands up in court if you had to bring these tests up. But Holling says, I think in the fifties, he said a doctor, I guess, analyzed his sperm and saw that they were deformed. And, uh, also Holling mentions some sort of anecdote that he had mumps when he was a kid. And, uh, I think these are his words, his testicles swelled up a bunch which apparently I think Joel says, yeah, I mean, in 50% of cases uh, with like adolescent mumps, sterility can happen. So yeah, it's kind of a big mystery. Yeah, I would have assumed that when he meant that he was sterile, it meant that he had his tubes tied. Like that's why ah, he was so uh-huh. adamant on that. It seems like he had like uh, anecdotal evidence that he couldn't have children. But, you know, as it turns out, he has some pretty strong proof. Yeah, I mean, apparently there was a doctor in the 50s. So that's kind of what we're going off of. But as we'll see, um, Joel continues sort of his um, investigation or, I don't know, he's, he's trying to figure out exactly what could have happened here to explain Jackie Vincour. Um, but I think in this scene, it's when Holling is sort of divulging this information. Shelley, I believe, is in there with him and she runs out sort of frustrated and Holling has to chase after her. Yeah, it's not like she cares that he's been with other women. I mean, he is 60-something years old. It's not unusual. But she's mostly mad that he lied about it, whereas he kind of implied that it was her fault that they couldn't have children rather than his own fault owning up to it. Yeah, that's her whole defense there or like her whole explanation for why, you know, she's really angry at him, exactly as you said, you know, like, she always thought it was her problem, but in the end it was, you know, well, it, well it's kind of, it's a interesting sort of pretzel or it's kind of a weird twist up because, you know, Holling admits that he knew he was sterile, but it turns out he's not sterile. So it's like, uh, he never told her that he was sterile, which in fact he isn't sterile. So it's kind of confusing. Like, I guess he, he feels like it shouldn't be a problem. He's like, I'm not actually sterile. But at the time, he really believed it, or maybe he knew he was sterile. It's just been disproved. It's it's confusing. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So Shelly goes and hangs out more with Jackie. Um, it just well, kind of... I do think, before we get that far, I did want to mention in this scene when he chases Shelly out into the street, there is like tons and tons of background traffic. Like, this is the busiest oh, yeah. I've ever seen uh, Main Street in Sicily. And 
multiple times, Holling will have to kind of like pull Shelly, you know, to protect her from a passing car. And when I watched this episode, I was like, wow, this is kind of crazy, um, really complicated choreography of, of all these vehicles. Um, but now, <laughs> you know, realizing who directed this episode, this is probably <laughs> the most unsafe episode <laughs> of Northern... <laughs> This is so dangerous. Um, no, I mean, you could accomplish the the appearance of danger with longer lenses. It makes the space look closer together than they actually are. So hopefully the cars weren't really passing close by the actors. That would be very unsafe. But I don't know, given this director, I'm not sure. I've always wondered, how do they get those shots where somebody's running across a road and the car almost hits them, but then it stops and it like honks at them and the, the person keeps running? Is the car, is it actually physically stopping right there and you're just trusting that he can stop right there? Like you just hired like a really professional driver? Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, it would have to be a stunt driver driving it. I'm, I don't know a lot about stunts. Uh, you know, I've only made really low budget movies. So we don't really have stunts, you know, in those movies, <laughs> it's not safe to, you know, perform the stunts unless you have a, um, a stunt driver. So yeah, I would assume that the stunt coordinator kind of works it out with the director and they figure out what kind of the best way to photograph it. But yeah, I mean, I guess if you wanted to be as safe as possible, the driver would need to be pretty confident in their ability of stopping at a certain, like where they're going to land, you know? And they probably have different ways, different angles of photographing it to where it looks closer and like, you know, the driver can be a little bit off and there's still like a huge distance between the car and the talent, you know? So there are probably safe ways of doing something that looks very unsafe. Oh, okay. Got it. Anyway, so you were getting on to the next little part of this plot. Oh, yeah. So they they start to hang out more, Shelly and Jackie. And is this kind of odd because... Jackie's significantly older, but Shelly's the, uh, you know, his, his girlfriend. So if Holling were to marry Shelly, Jackie would be her daughter-in-law, which is really strange. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is, <laughs> I don't, I forget. I guess they mentioned that in the episode, but <laughs> the one thing they keep bringing up, which I mean, is like sort of true, but not really. But all the characters in the episode are like, don't they don't they look similar? Shelly and Jackie, they kind of look the same. I mean, they're both blonde. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's not just me, right? I mean, that's I feel like the no, characters it's are kind of kind of weird. Yeah, they're kind of like like what what are you implying that that he would date his <laughs> yeah, daughter? Yeah, exactly. That too. It's like the implication is weird, but also I don't think they look that similar. Whatever. Um they just keep saying that in this episode. Um yeah, so Shelly's hanging out with Jackie. I really like Shelly's, her jacket in this episode. It's kind of like stitched together with a lot of different patterns and designs. And I think Shelly starts smoking, like, or picks up, you know, smoking cigarettes from Jackie. Yeah, they're just kind of like doing some mischievous stuff. I think Jackie, I think Maurice mentions how like Jackie beat him at cards a bunch. Uh, she's like doing some pool, teaching Shelly some pool tricks, like how to, um, entice like the male pool player i don't know exactly and yeah just kind of just kind of pulling little tricks yeah she's obviously being a bad influence on shelly but she's just doing that to get back at hauling because of right what yeah i mean kind of she's kind of showing her age you know she is only like 20 something years old sounds like something you would do 
But we see that Holling is talking with Maurice and he's really kind of picking up on her tricks because she's saying that she's between jobs, even though previously she said that she was doing some sort of other thing. Her statements are flip-flopping. She's changing cities a lot. She looks like a fraudster to him and he's ready to call her out. Yeah, I think also she like keeps asking Holling for like change or like more quarters or more money for the jukebox, keeps ordering drinks and is always like, oh, don't. Don't forget to remind me to write you a check to pay you back for X and Y. Uh, so Hollings had it up to here. I think this is what we're talking about or what you're talking about, Charles. Like they kind of get face to face and Jackie actually kind of like dares Holling to punch her. What'd you, what'd you make of this scene? Uh, Kind of strange. I, I felt yeah. like they could have resolved that maybe in a different way rather than resorting to physical violence because it's obvious that he's not going to hit her. And what makes it even more weird, in my opinion, is that after that scene happens, they show a shot of Shelly kind of reevaluating her thoughts on Holling. And I don't know why you have to reevaluate your thoughts on that. Like, he he wasn't going to hit her. I, uh, that, that doesn't, I don't know why she's thinking. She's like, wow, he, I really did choose a right man. It's like, no, like <laughs> nobody would have hit like a woman like that. Like nobody would hit anybody in public like that. Yeah. It's, I, mean, I don't know. I mean, this is uh Sicily, Alaska. I think there's like an episode where Ed says like, uh, you, you move here if you like drinking and fighting or something. That's like why you live in Sicily or why you go to the brick. So, you know, there's like an episode that starts with uh, two sort of lumberjacks arguing over the best hunting dog and just starting, you know, that that's a thing that I think is sort of like in the show Bible as like, this is sort of like the roll up your sleeves and like burly men fighting, but it doesn't really happen very often on the show, but uh, should, I guess, is one of the characteristics of this, this locale. Mm. Well, I guess what that scene is meant to portray is that he's realizing how similar they are because maybe in the past, Holling was kind of like that. He was mm. somebody that would just kind of goad someone on, yeah. you know, try to call them out on their stuff. So maybe he's just seeing his own reflection and being like, oh, shoot, this this is actually my daughter. Yeah, I never thought about that because there's the whole idea that is brought up in this episode and in previous episodes where Holling talks about how his bloodline is tainted. You know, literally the bad seed, like all the Vincourers, and his family are evil people. And so maybe he sees that which is in himself uh, that he's been able to overcome, but he sees that in Jackie. And maybe, I guess we're jumping ahead too, but maybe he has some guilt uh, for not being there to supervise or to guide Jackie away from uh, from her bad blood. But well, we'll get to that yeah, okay. when, when we sort of... Oh, go ahead. Okay, so I take back my statement. I, I can see what this scene was meant to convey, uh, if, if we're interpreting it in this manner. And I, I again, like I'm saying, it just seems like it's his own... I just wanted to say, it, it still seems like it was by his own design that she turned out this way. He's talking about how the Vincor bloodline is really evil and the rapscallions and all that. It's like, you're not helping. Like, yeah. You're, 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 it's like self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. Yeah, you're furthering the cause of what you're saying that you're against. So maybe if you were a bit more responsible, you know, the bloodline could change. And it's kind of strange that he thinks like any future child he would have would be a bastard. It's like, what? Yeah. I think there was like 15 million sperm that Joel was saying. It's like, he said 15 million were all bad. Yeah. To, to his defense, he says he never knew that he had a daughter. But still, I think Holling's whole like a attitude towards this idea of the bad seed is very defeatist or very like uh, 
he's not very optimistic about it. You know, like I, I get what you're saying, Charles. It's like, you know, you have the power, even if your bloodline is tainted, like you have the power to, I guess it's a nature versus nurture argument, but you know, if you want to be the parent, you can try to guide your child to the light. You know, Shelly's going to be a good mother. Holling's going to be a great dad. Even if he's like cursed, you know, it's a, maybe it's a battle worth fighting, you know? Yeah, no, definitely. I, I agree. <laughs> Uh, so we get a pretty interesting sequence that's sort of like a silent film. It's got like uh, this like piano rag uh, style music going on. Kind of reminded me a lot of The Sting, which uh, features a lot of like Scott Joplin rag, ragtime music, and uh, has some sequences that are kind of, uh, you know, focusing on con artists. Like in this scene, it's sort of uh, silent, but we see Jackie bump into Ed and uh, then, you know, Jackie walks away and she's got a wallet and then we cut back to Ed and, you know, he's like touching his jacket. He's like, huh, where's my wallet at? Um, And it's kind of set to this, again, this piano music. Uh, So she's like pulling these tricks. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I think the next time we see her, it's with, uh, she's with Shelly in Ruthann's store. And they're they're end up pulling a trick. What what exactly happens here? Yeah, so they're kind of just out shopping, and and Shelly wants to buy some snacks for hauling. But before that happens, she asks Jackie if she has any children, and she has two. And one of them, she says, used to be doing aluminum siding, which I don't know if you know this, but that used to be uh, con men as well. Really? Why is that? Yeah. So originally there would be a term called tin men and it was referred primarily to siding salesmen and to the tactics that they were using, which were really deceptive and pushing. So in the 1950s, that was one of the biggest scams, aluminum siding salesmen who would promise homeowners a commission or a referral fee for any neighbors who purchased the siding. They might also tell the homeowners that the product would be free or they'd have to pay only for the labor. But either way, the consumers ended up paying quite a bit of money for work they'd been led to believe would have cost much less. They even made a film on it in 1987 called Tin Men, which uh, starred Richard Dreyfuss and Danny DeVito. Oh, wow. That sounds awesome. Um yeah. Yeah. So it's. I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, their their children were also right. con artist jobs. Did she mention the other uh, her other child's line of work? Or, um... Yeah. Let's see. Oh wait. Hang on. She admits it. She says they're into the long con, aluminum siding, pyramid schemes. Oh. Okay. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So she like knows that her children are also uh, con artists, but. I don't know. I, th- I don't think she looks down on being a con artist. She thinks she has the upper hand on everybody. You know, she doesn't, she doesn't care to rip off. She doesn't care that she rips off Ruth Ann, but we see, um, Shelly, whenever they leave the store, Shelly asks Jackie, did you like, um, did you pull a fast one on Ruth Ann? I think is what she says. Mm-hmm. But, um, obviously Shelly is realizing she wants to get back at hauling, but it's <laughs> kind of worried that she's aligning herself with, with Jackie here. Well, if you're, I just want to say, if you're cheated out of a father, then you're going to find that you're at a deficit that can never be repaired. So you feel like you can just cheat anybody else. And ah. you, you would find that that would even out the score a yeah. little bit. So little, little I, I can see why she's doing it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, before we leave Ruth Ann's store, uh, the snack that Shelly wants to pick up for hauling is Kipper Snacks, which uh, I don't know if you've ever had, but I used to eat those a lot as a kid. I'm not sure why, because... Uh, 
I mean, I, I still like Kipper snacks, but they're kind of unpalatable. They're super fishy, super salty. Maybe it was just, you know, me as a kid really, really liking like a salty snack, but uh, super fishy flavor. I'm not sure why I liked that as a kid. Wait, so what is Kippers again? Is that just fish? It's kind of like, um, it's like a sardine. It, I mean, it's obviously, I think it's a different type of fish, but uh, the ones I had when I was a kid, uh, they were in a can, like a little tin can, and uh, really salted, and I guess that's like um, preserved, I guess, like, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Mm, okay, I've never heard of that. I, I thought it was some sort of Alaskan delicacy that she was sad and looked <laughs> too much into it. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, enough of that. Let's, uh, oh, there's something we skipped over just a second ago. It was the scene from which we pulled the opening soundbite when Joel sits hauling down and says, you know, I've been talking to some other doctors. We find this a fascinating case. I'd like to study this a little closer, you know, keep looking into this. And, uh, he asks hauling for a sperm sample (laughs) and, uh, Joel just has like a, a drawer filled with uh, nudie mags, like, I don't know, he's just like penthouse hustler or something. And, uh, you know, he's like totally, totally professional about it, but that's just like in his desk. I think that's for his like own personal stash. That's always a trope where somebody <laughs> needs to go do a paternity test or something. And then the doctor hands him a cup and they always go like, well, in there? It's like, yeah, like where where else, man? Like, like I don't understand why you're so surprised by this. It's not like we're going to, tell genetic sample from your hair like yeah (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um okay well after this joel is able to take a look at the sperm sample and uh you know on first glance he says holling you've got very healthy sperm but if you put it under the microscope take a closer look they're all bent and broken uh very abnormal shaped sperm which kind of um corroborates the report from the, like the, the doctor from the 1950s saying that his sperm was deformed. But Joel does say, I think he calls it varicocele, which I think has to do with uh, like the veins um, in your testicles getting like too knotted up or something. But also he mentions, uh, you know, that the testicles have to be at a certain temperature uh, for sperm to be normal, I guess. And I, perhaps... Hauling is too hot. Anyway, uh, he, he finally breaks it down and shows Hauling that if you look on the microscope in this corner, you can see one sperm cell that's like flitting around, very healthy, uh, very active. It looks normal. And that's how we get the idea of the, uh, it's like the one in, the, in all of the million uh, that would become, you know, Jackie. Yeah. Uh, is it a million or a billion? Well, they say one in a million chance, I think, in this scene. But earlier, Joel says, like, I think he asks Marilyn, he says, do you know how many uh, sperm can live in, like, whatever, like, cubic centimeter? You know, he he gives some uh, measurement. It's like 15 million. So, so yeah, it's, it's mm. a lot. Okay, got it. So, yeah, <laughs> it turned out it was just like a fluke, really, really small fluke that managed to have him have a child. But I find that to be a strange explanation throughout the episode. Um, I don't know. Like, it feels like they were trying to fix up loose plot holes and still trying to give themselves a way out. They're like, yeah, no, 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 he still can't have children. But, you know, once in a giant blue moon, he can. <laughs> well, now, you know, it's it has changed a little because there is sort of like that condom PSA that they do, I think, uh... 
God, I blacked this scene out of my mind. But <laughs> I do remember, like, I think Shelly and Holly are getting in bed, and, like, uh, Shelly, I think, holds up a condom or something. Uh, that just seems, like, nefarious to me, man. Dude. Like, you're telling me, you're telling me this, okay, I, I'm, I'm sorry for getting into this territory, but you're telling me that this, like, really much older man told this much younger girl that he yeah. does, they, they don't want condoms because, quote-unquote, he's sterile. Like, well, there's no other dude. ulterior motive here. <laughs> Dude, well, I mean, he, I think Colin believed that to be true, that he was sterile. Like a doctor told him that. I don't think he was trying to, you know, trick Shelly, but uh, I mean, I guess now they know better, but I don't know. No, but still, like in real life, like if someone said that, you'd be like, no, 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 no. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You would still, I mean, yeah, that's your, that's your little condom PSA, you know, always wear protection. Um, okay, let's, 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 uh, speed through the rest of this, uh, this plot line so we can keep going. Um, there's a whole scene with ambrosia salad. That's, uh, I can't remember the last time I had some of that, but not a big fan of ambrosia salad. Isn't that the one with, uh, like, it's like cheese or something? No, I think you're thinking of like cottage cheese. I think ambrosia salad has like marshmallows and lots of canned fruits um, I think you can use like condensed milk. Yeah. It's like this creamy fruit salad. Oh, yeah. I know. Hang on. There was like a joke when they were like a Minnesota salad, which is pretty much just like Cool Whip and like chocolate and like all that. And they call it a <laughs> Minnesota salad or something. Yeah. I think you can do Cool Whip and Ambrosia. So Minnesota may be like a uh, a version, you know. Uh, anyway, so Shelly's making that and <laughs> Holling's trying to be kind you know he's trying to get on her good side because she's been uh hanging out with jackie so much and working so hard to anger him but it's in this scene that he does admit you know he he kind of levels with her and and says look i i didn't want to tell you about my own sterility because um he thought he would feel like less of a man to her um so you know he admits that he had a fault in trying to maybe act too manly you know around her but of course, Shelly loves him. That's not going to be a problem for her. And uh, it's in this scene when Shelly has that remark about, you know, thinking about Jackie all alone when she was a kid, you know, without a father. Yeah, she realizes that she's bad news, but she's able to sympathize. She's able to see why she is this way. And that's what leads Holling to go speak to her. He wants to know what's her deal, like finally just cut down to the end. And he confronts her in her room, kind of sort of acts like a father figure in, in the way that yeah. he tells her it is like, quit BSing around. Just tell me what you want. And what she wants is money. Yeah. No, he does He does enter dad mode because he's like, he goes into her room, like shuts the door. It feels very much like, um, like an angry father, like kind of uh, trying to discipline like a teenage daughter or something. Uh, she's like laying in the bed, not really paying attention to him. Uh, so it, it has those kind of like, um, uh, that imagery of, of sort of like dad mode. Uh, but yeah, that's like, is that how the scene ends? I think yeah. he's just like, why are you here? It's just money. Um, he's, I think he says how much, but, um, no, yeah, I think you're totally right. It's, um, Shelly's, uh, remark about Jackie growing up all alone kind of gives hauling a bit of guilt and he realizes he's got to step in. And I think he says, like, I recognize you as my own. Uh, I take full responsibility now. 
But then in the very same sentence, he says, I want you to leave now. I wonder, hang on, let me see into this. How much would child support payment be for 18 years? You can factor in, I guess this was 1992, so 18 years prior. Oh, shoot, I forgot. It takes adjusted gross income, so it's like a percentage. He's not like a flat amount. Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. Oh, so it's a percentage of whatever your earnings. Which apparently is pretty big for hauling, so it can add up. If he had to pay 18 years of uh, missing child support payment. Hold up. So we don't... um, Do we see Jackie after this? I've got like very cloudy notes here. That's how the scene ends. So we assume that he just pays it? Yeah, like... it's kind of weird. The next scene is the is the condom PSA. Yeah, uh, but that's about it. We don't really see her again after this scene, so maybe there's a deleted scene or something. But um, yeah, so I, that's resolved somehow. I guess he just gives her some money. Uh, cool. So, <laughs> what, what? Where should we go to next? Let's uh, let's talk about Marilyn. Let's talk about her getting a new house. Yeah, this is a great. Uh, this is a great little plot line. It begins with uh. Marilyn having like a breakfast, I think, with her mom. This is a mother whirlwind, I guess you could say. And the actress uh, who is playing uh, Mrs. Whirlwind is uh, in real life uh, Elaine Miles's mom. Elaine Miles is who plays Marilyn. So they're they're mother and daughter in real life as well as on the show. Though I think we brought it up um, in the first season. This actress is featured, but not as Marilyn's mom. She's featured as Mrs. Anku. If you remember uh, Uncle Anku. Oh. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Armenia Miles is uh, Uncle Anku's wife, I guess. But that was way back in the first season. So she's probably like in multiple episodes as an extra or, you know, she's probably like hanging around the set a lot because, of course, I guess Marilyn's on set. But um they decided to bring her in as the mother character. Yeah, it works out in the end. And they're having their ordinary breakfast right there, but she's changed up a little bit, like frying pans, cooking methods, all that. And I found it really interesting because Marilyn is saying that she likes the old way. She's saying she liked the old frying pan. And her mother points out that it was made of aluminum. And aluminum, according to her, caused Alzheimer's. But with today's research, we can see that aluminum has... No solid evidence of leading to Alzheimer's disease. There's no convincing relationship between them. But, you know, back in 1994, I'm not going to fault them if they felt that. Yeah, it's kind of like they, they're they kind of arguing whenever and wherever they can. It's very back and forth, you know, as you could expect from Marilyn. She's uh, a woman of few words, so they just kind of have a very short, terse uh, conversation, but any topic they sort of get on, it's like, the, you know, I like the old one better. Uh, copper is nice. It's like, no, the old one was like aluminum. I liked it better. You know, they, they're, um, you know, it may not be clear at first, but you kind of get the idea by the next scene that their relationship is a bit contentious because Marilyn moves out. Yeah. She goes to Maggie's house with a bunch of suitcases, presumably her belongings. <laughs> and she wants her to work on finding her a house stat. And I had forgotten actually that, Maggie is in charge of housing for some reason in this town. Like she's not just a pilot. I was kind of confused when I was watching the scene. Yeah. I was like, why? Why like why why are you going to her? <laughs> why is she right? Uh that's established in the pilot and uh in a couple episodes thereafter because she's Joel's landlord, I guess landlady. And yeah, I don't know that she owns any other properties, but I guess we can assume she does because uh Marilyn is approaching her and as you said, asking her to like, 
you know, it's like, I brought all my bags. I'll just wait here. Go ahead and get on the phone and call up whoever you need to call up. Let, show me some houses. You know? <laughs> I was so surprised at the number of houses that Maggie brought to her, which happens in the next scene where she's trying to show her all these new houses with the new amenities inside them with outlets and possibilities within. And she's denying it. She's saying like, no, I don't want that house. I want to, you know, keep, please keep searching. And I'm just surprised at the number of houses that are available to search for in the town of Sicily. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's such a small town, um, but they have, I guess they've got, I don't know. Yeah, the the house that Maggie shows Marilyn, I think first, but it's one of the houses. The scene leads off with Maggie sort of talking about these windows and she says, it's got a nice Southern exposure. I just thought that was a funny play on the title of the show. <laughs> um, but in this case, meaning like, exposing the house to the southern side or something, you know, sunlight coming in or something. Uh, Marilyn's questions are interesting. She uh, she asks Maggie, do people come visit? And Maggie says, uh, I don't know. I think uh, one person who used to live here had someone visit him at one point. I don't know. Like It's like, what does it matter? It's a little confusing. The, the qualities that Marilyn is looking for are maybe metaphysical or more mysterious because um, Marilyn sort of disagrees with the like the feng shui of the stove in one scene. She says uh, the stove should be over there, you know, where it is right now. It makes the air nervous, whatever that means. I think it's a play on the symbolism of birds that are throughout this episode. So we oh. see birds and daughters popping up a lot. And for Marilyn's case, she is her mother's daughter going away from the nest. She's kind of gone south for the winter and the air in which she is traveling through is not comfortable to her liking. And we can see if you want me to complete this analogy is that at the end of the episode, she comes back home to roost. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah. 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 Cause she does return back home, but that's uh, yeah, that's very similar to like a migration, you know, of, uh, of birds. That's pretty awesome. Um, Let's see. Joel, is sort of wandering around the office and uh, Marilyn is reading a HG magazine. And uh, I like this little conversation they talk about, you know, what is it that you're looking for anyway? How's the house hunting? Find a place? No. Well, you've seen enough of them. What are you looking for anyway? My dream house. Your dream house. What does that mean, dream house? Everybody has a dream house. I know. No. I've always lived in an apartment. Austin Street, Queens, the Upper West Side. For a brief time, a a loft sublet in Soho. Also, something I didn't really get about that scene is, you know, at the end there, Joel walks over to the radiator as he's talking about the different uh, apartments that he's lived in. He he picks up a wrench off the top of the radiator and just starts banging the crap out of that radiator. Like, what's going on there? Why why that? Okay, so... I attributed that to us being millennials because I was thinking, I was like, okay, that's got to be like natural back in the day. Like maybe that's how you do it. Because I don't know how a radiator works. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen a radiator. Well, we don't live in a very cold, cold climate, Charles. That's so. true. So yeah. That's true. But go ahead. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen a radiator except for one of those, um, you ever been on one of those old house tours where you're like, this is where Ben Franklin used to live. And you like go inside their house. <laughs> like that's the only time I've seen a radiator. <laughs> I'm guessing maybe like some sort of sediment or something builds up in there. I don't I don't know how radiators work, but you got to dislodge it or I don't know, it's just funny like you 
you pick up a wrench, you think you're going to actually use it as a tool, but he just like smacks the crap out of that radiator. <laughs> I don't know if that has to say, if that's supposed to like tie into like what he's talking about, like how he just doesn't know the first thing about homeowning. He's, he just knows apartments and he's not a, uh, oh. he's not the homeowning type because he's just beats a radiator. That's his solution. But, uh, I don't know. Maybe that's, maybe it was just a thing that the, that they wanted to put in there. Um, it's really funny to me for some reason. Yeah, uh, Marilyn's mentioning that she's reading HG Magazine and she's looking for her dream house. That reminded me of a bit that John Millennia did on one of his specials. I think it was Comeback Kid, where he said, Every episode of HGTV is like, Craig and Stashi are looking for a two-story A-frame that's near Craig's job in the downtown, but also satisfies Stashia's need to be near the beach, which is nowhere near Craig's job. With three <laughs> children and nine on the way and a max budget of $7, Let's see what Lori Joe can do on this week's episode of You Don't Deserve a Beach House. Yeah, it's so specific uh, and the restraints are so strong, you know, and it, it, this applies also to this episode because, uh, you know, Maggie's got to show Marilyn all these all these variety of houses and nothing lines up. I think uh, at multiple times Maggie's like, what are you looking for? Like, tell me, I can find it for you. And Marilyn gives off like a list of, um, I wrote it down. She says, it's got to have two floors. A pointed roof, big vegetable garden, lavender kitchen, a sauna. You know, I feel like she would just keep going on and on, but but that's <laughs> as far as she gets when Maggie's like, okay, well, give me some time. Yeah, it's such a this show is such a relic of its time because I, we're watching this as millennials and we're like, there's no way you can be that picky buying a house. First of all, there's no way you can afford a house with her job. And <laughs> second of all, it's like you cannot <laughs> yeah. be that picky. Like right now, we're just like, look, if, if it's not like functional like walls like it's it's fine <laughs> it's got four walls and a roof um all right so maggie goes to see mrs whirlwind who is still living in you know the her house she's pickling um by the way it's pretty cool she's like uh going in and outside like she goes into her kitchen and brings out some uh produce and puts it on this little bench she's got there that she's like pickling uh, i think she's going to be pickling beets she says but um I remember what the conversation is about, but I can't remember why does Maggie go to Mrs. Whirlin in the first place? Is it to try to like mend the relationship between Marilyn and, and her mom or uh, do you remember? Yeah. It's to kill two birds with one stone. So she wants ah. to mend the relationship, but also this would help fix her problem of trying to find Marilyn's dream house. Cause apparently those criteria that she requires does not exist. Yeah. So she's trying to, you know, she can't find the house for Marilyn so uh, instead of like solving the problem, she would eliminate the problem by have Marilyn move back in. Uh, but it's pretty clear that Marilyn and her mother are pretty stubborn, you know, in their own ways. But also, even if they weren't, it turns out that Mrs. Whirlwind is selling the house. Like actually, in fact, the, the moment that she tells Maggie that she's like putting the house up on the market, she like uh, hammers in the sign you know, she's got a sign that says for sale. Like it's kind of, it's a visual cue too, but it's like, did she just decide to do that right then and there? Like why, why is she hammering the sign? I don't know. To prove a point. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, she drives Marilyn over and you know, Marilyn's kind of critiquing the house of what she would do if she owned it to change it. Like the railing needs to be fixed, <laughs> yeah, yeah. needs a new coat of paint, all that. So yeah, she goes off and purchases it. Yeah. It's funny because I mean, both Maggie and Marilyn know that this is uh, 
this is Marilyn's old house, but Marilyn plays as if it's like she's seeing it like uh, like it's new real estate that Maggie's showing her. She's like viewing it as as the outsider now. But um, yeah, she she says I'll take it. And uh, then we then that's when we get that wonderful scene we kind of talked about when uh, I guess Marilyn invites her mother over for housewarming and they have like a dinner. Um, I think the potatoes are like really bland or something. Joel, Joel mentions, uh, I wonder if we could just play a, like a soundbite from this. I like your new house, Marilyn. Thank you. I mean, it's, uh, it's a lot like your old house, only, um, different. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, different. More potatoes. Yeah. And again, this is, uh, it's a wonderful chemistry. You get Joel trying to fill the air, you know, because he's got a, I don't know, like maybe an uncomfortable friendship with Marilyn because, you know, they work together all the time, but they, they don't get to talking too much or, or Marilyn doesn't have uh, a lot to say all the time. Um, but we also have Maggie in the scene, which is fun to see her react to Joel uh, sort of trapped in this situation. It's really funny to watch that. Oh, yeah, definitely. I wonder if there's a, is there a bank in Sicily? There's got to be, but I don't think we ever see that. Yeah, I don't know if – I mean, pretty sure, Charles, we haven't seen an episode featuring a bank yet. Um, and I don't know if we ever will, but that's something we can keep an eye out for. Okay, Why? Why do you bring it up? I'm just wondering, like, did she just purchase the house, like, with just with her life savings? Of like, no mortgage? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. It's um, – yeah, I don't know. Uh, okay. So, yeah, I think that's the last – little part of Marilyn's storyline. We don't think we see her again the rest of the episode, but we're leaving off uh, one last plot line. This is, a, this is one I really like. It's to deal with the cranes that we sort of talked about when uh, Chris is eating that fried chicken in the first scene. Yeah, so we're going to get into the crane plot line, which starts off with Ed sitting on a pile of lumber, just kind of waiting for the cranes, because I think everybody knows that those cranes are coming. And Maurice comes to go give him a dressing down. He's uh, (laughs) really mad at his performance on... I I think he was supposed to be... I think he was supposed to be delivering it to like a coffee shop of some kind, like making sure that this rough draft would be acceptable to Maurice's standards, which apparently it wasn't. Yeah. He's got to like, I think he was supposed to photocopy the manuscript of Maurice's memoir, but uh, messed that up. Yeah. Yeah. He totally messed it up and he kind of just doesn't care. He's just like, Hey, I'm sorry, man. Oh wait, hang on. Princess is here. And he just, just boost. <laughs> yeah. That happens uh, a number of times in this show where Maurice kind of goes on a tirade, but no one pays attention to him, you know? Poor Maurice. But uh, yeah, definitely in this scene, Ed is like sky watching. He's not, not paying attention. And as you mentioned, Charles, you mentioned the name Princess. She's back. So, so tell us about Princess. Yeah. So apparently it's this young bird that Ed had nurtured from the beginning he had fed her worms, made sure that she was okay, kept her warm. And I had heard that birds can imprint on humans. So I can kind of see what they're going on with on here, where this bird imprinted on Ed. Every single time it migrates towards Sicily, Alaska, it would go toward him. But yeah, I think it's really interesting that they're using cranes in this episode because cranes, like Chris said, are normally used as symbolism for happiness or fertility, both of which are happening throughout this episode. 
There was one little oh, wow, thing that yeah. I've always liked about the mythology of cranes. They, um, it was done by Pliny the Elder, who said that a crane is incredibly vigilant to the point where they would hold a stone in one of its claws so that if it fell asleep, the claw would drop the stone and the crane would wake up and then it would stand guard again. And I always thought that was kind of huh. neat. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. I love the crane in this episode. Uh, really good animal handling. I, I guess we'll talk about it in the final scene. But uh, yeah, it's cute little, a cute little pet. And as you mentioned, she visits every year when she migrates or she flies, you know, through. And uh, um, you're talking about like uh, animals imprinting. Chris, you know, Chris is hanging out with Ed a lot in this episode. And Ed is telling Chris the story of Princess, how he nursed her, like you said. And Chris says something like uh, he, he knew a guy who wanted to marry a dolphin or something. He wasn't exactly sure what turned out there. Um, yeah, I don't know. I wrote that down. That was interesting. Chris um, tries to play matchmaker for Princess because Princess is, uh, I guess, growing older now. She's not just like a little chick or like a little bird. Um, there are other cranes, you know, that are also flying through. And there's sort of like a a Romeo, I think, is what Chris calls, calls this other crane that's, uh, you know, trying to do some like mating dances or something. But... But Princess doesn't want any of that. Yeah, so Princess isn't ready to leave the nest. She is possibly a late bloomer, according to Chris. And that gets Ed really worried. He comes to Cape Air where Chris is at, doing his job, and he's spun out of control because he's saying, like, she's all confused. She, she, You know, you were right. She should be mated right now. What am I doing? I'm leading her astray. That's where Chris gets the idea to be like, well, there is something you could do. You could do this dance. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, it's true. Ed Ed feels um, very worried. I, I think at first he was like uh, kind of prohibitive, but he realizes like, no, you're you're right, Chris. Like she needs to, uh, she's got to find a mate. Chris suggests, as you said, the the dance, the crane dance. It's pretty funny because he brings this up with uh, full confidence, but Ed is like, uh, I think you can see that Ed Ed senses that Chris is just messing with him. Ed's like, no, I've never <laughs> heard of this crane dance, but Chris continues he says yeah it's like a, it's this like um ancient indian ritual and ed is almost kind of laughing he's like no this this doesn't make any sense but you know i think it's the is this is such a short plot i think because the next time we see them is the next time they see them they're going to to do the dance with um with princess yeah yeah they're out there yeah and- a short but sweet little C plot, but I, you know, really, um, this is a very memorable plot for me for some reason, but it really doesn't have a lot of screen time. Yeah. Uh, for the final scene, they wade out into the pond where princess is laying around. They're trying to locate the male and then they get around princess and start dancing with abandon. Yeah. Ed's like, you know, what, what do we do now? And Chris says, now we dance with abandon. And, uh, they start kind of like, how would you describe it? Almost like lifting their arms as if they had wings and kind of like uh, lifting each of their legs up, you know, kind of standing on one leg and kind of kind of doing the like a crane stance and really bouncing around. There's this uh, sort of jovial, very unique music that's playing here. Um, but I think it fits, you know, it sounds kind of goofy, but I think it fits like really well. It's um, the song is Lay My Love by Brian Eno. So, you know, like famous music producer, musician. Uh, I think it's a really cool fit here. And one of the things that really struck me is like, 
such a strange, this is one of those like strange endings. Like if you're watching this on TV, the song starts playing. These guys start dancing for like a full minute. Like there's no dialogue. They're just like <laughs> dancing. Uh, yeah. If I was watching that, I'd be like, wait, what what's happening? And then, it, and then it fades to black and it just goes to credits. You know, yeah, what's hilarious is that if you were watching this and you, you watch that whole scene unfold and you're like, all right, who was responsible for that? And like the scene fades to black and it's like Joshua Brand off Elsa. <laughs> and you're just like, okay, that's who I, that's who I'm blaming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They, I mean, Hey, they, they initialed it. They loved this idea. I, I like it. I think it's a cool, and I was going to say the, uh, the animal handling, the coordinator here, I don't know if this is a trained crane or if they're just like, but it does start to dance. It's really cool. Like it's almost obviously um, Chris and Ed are mimicking a crane, but whenever it starts lifting its wings, it's like they're all kind of doing the same dance. It's really cute to me for some reason. Yeah, they probably did like hundreds of hours of takes on that until that crane started moving its wings as well. <laughs> the sequence is really great because like first Ed and Chris start dancing and then there's just a shot of Princess She's still, she's kind of just like looking back and forth between the two of them. Like, uh, she's like, wait, what? But then, you know, as this music starts to flourish and kick in, uh, she even starts to like lift her legs and lift her wings up. And yeah, it's a legit like sort of mating dance uh, that that's happening. It's pretty cool. Okay. So now it's time in our episode to introduce our guest on this podcast. Every episode, we like to bring on someone who is uh, usually someone who has never seen the show before, sort of an outsider perspective. And I'm very happy to introduce my cousin, Josh, who had never heard of the show before, um, but had a lot to say. So without further ado, let's hear Josh's thoughts on this episode. Haley, I made some notes. Uh, I'm going to kind of read from them. So I watched season... Uh, for episode seven, The Bad Seed. I never heard of the show before, so this is my first episode. But before I get started, I want to say, if you like this review, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Let's go. So my name is Josh, and I'm 34. I live in Louisiana, and I'm a 90s country music fan. There were three bar scenes in the episode uh, with country music where I was hardly paying attention to the show and spent time trying to song, find the songs. So the thing is, they were really tough to hear because of all the dialogue. And the parts I did hear, I looked up and couldn't find anything. For example, the first song, the lyrics went, She knows how to turn my eggs over easy, fry my bacon till it's burnt just right. Well, I searched and couldn't find anything. Couldn't hear the chorus because Jackie, the scammer, talks right over it, so I'm already not liking her. Then I close my eyes and connect my beats. Quick side note about my beats. I never knew what I was missing until I got up here. So for 25 years, I thought Breakfast at Tiffany's by Deep Blue Something was saying, uh, I said, what about Breakfast at Tiffany's? She said, I think I remember it feels like, as I recall, I think. So I thought they said, I remember it feels like, but they actually say, she said, I think I remember the film. So I couldn't, until I got the Beats headphones, like didn't even hear that at all which is crazy for 25 years. So, um, see, back to the story. So, uh, all right, so I closed my eyes, like put on my beats, and I heard more country lyrics. This time they went, there's always something cooking in Amy's kitchen. She puts a lot of loving to her recipes. So I looked that up, nothing but recipes. 
So I couldn't spend all day trying to find the songs, so I just moved on. Um, something not to do with country music was the entire character of Ed is really strange. The way he talked and the way he acted. I couldn't tell if he was mentally challenged, mentally capable, and an idiot. Not a real Native American and just had a terrible accent. Is playing a stoner character or just something else. But maybe in a previous episode they explained that. Uh, not even, I wasn't even a quarter of the way through the episode and everything seemed backwards. Like Jackie is somehow hauling daughter when they look the exact same age. The whole time I'm thinking, where is the town sheriff? Like, the woman's six years, six years old and hassling him. Like, just kick her out of your bar. Why is he even putting up with her? He doesn't even have to worry about child support or anything like that. Plus, he says, and is told numerous times that she's a thief. But he's still trusting that one paper that he saw for five seconds that she quickly pulled away. This is just a guess, but I'm guessing that those papers were forged. Uh, like, her, his ex was trying to get back at her. Uh, and gave Jackie all the information and all that, but who knows. So we were went back to the bar, and there was another country banger. It was the, those three songs that I heard, those country songs, probably the best 90s country songs that I've never heard. It sounded like the same singer and another song about the kitchen and recipes, but I heard the lyrics, something is into guns, or someone is into guns, Jenny's into grammar. She can swing it like a lady. She can swing it like a hammer. Strange lyrics, but could be a country song. So I did a search, couldn't find anything. Uh, started to think I was starting to think that the songs were made up just for this episode. And if they were, somebody definitely needs to sign that guy to a deal. Twenty years ago, they should sign that deal. Let's see. I don't. I didn't have really much to say about the whole house hunting part. Except all that I could really think about was how much the Native American mother-daughter duo looked like Roseanne Barr and John Goodman combined. So now to the Fleshman and the first visit where they talk about how Holling is sterile. The whole time I'm thinking, why is Holling's daughter talking about his swimmers? They get in the argument and in the next five to ten minutes I'm not paying attention again while I process... Shelly not being Holling's daughter. Instead, she's somehow his girlfriend or his wife. It was a good episode to be my first one because I'm over here thinking Shelly is his daughter and just jealous of the six-year-old Jackie who's stealing attention and money from her dad when in actuality it's all flipped around and nothing makes sense and the whole episode is just super weird and confusing. Uh, Chris, the DJ, I was pretty sure is related to Paul Rudd somehow. Maybe it's like his brother, like Saul Rudd or something. But he clears up that Ed is supposed to be a Native American. So that's something I had noticed from earlier. I didn't look it up, but if Ed really is a real Native American, he does a great job at playing a white American acting like a Native American based on all Native American stereotypes. Or maybe I just don't know what real Native Americans sound like. Oh, okay. So next, I thought uh, things couldn't get more unexpected. And then I hear Dr. Fleshman say, come again. And Holling say, no, wants to be sufficient. So he was basically, they're making a, a joke or sperm joke. I don't know if you could say. But if this was his second sample, that would make sense. But this is actually just his first sperm sample. The first one was just the blood. So 
It's not a very good sperm joke. So a better sperm joke would have been something like this. It'd be Dr. Fleshman say, I'm going to need a sample. Holly, sure, always carry samples with me. Dr. Fleshman, do you? Semen? Holly, no men, just Shelly. Then he goes on to explain how he always carries the new bar food samples with him. So see, much better. Uh, actually, at that point, I was starting to think that the point of the whole episode was that someone had a bet that they could get a sperm joke on TV. So they built an entire episode around it, because no way that joke would be allowed in the 90s. They're come again joke. So my sperm bet theory would explain why the whole episode seems all over the place. The deep detail about sperm and sterility going on through the entire episode. They're naming an actual disease and explaining uh, what they do to the sperm. So they were saying like they were bent and stuff. Uh, so if it's educational, the network has to allow it. Uh, which, what network did it go? Did it come on? I don't even know anything about this show. I started listening to the first, y'all's first podcast, the pilot, but I need to uh, also watch them. So maybe if there's, you could point out to where you watch them. Because um, I tried to even look on Roku and it wasn't there. So that's questions for you guys. So... Uh, and the storyline about the mating cranes, like that came out of nowhere. So it's all having to do with like sex and stuff, just so they can get the sperm joke in there. And then the last thing is Jackie's sole purpose is to make the story believable so that they can make that one sper sperm joke on TV. If you think about it, it's a pretty good theory. So since Holling could just have a, she, he could have just arrested her or kicked her out. So they had to keep this all going and keep her there when there was such an easy solution. The only thing that didn't make sense with my theory was that uh, the Roseanne uh, realtor lady, uh, she was just wasting that, that realtor's time. Didn't really have anything to do with sperm. I can't say So I'm assuming that Roseanne, we'll just call her Roseanne, I don't remember her name, uh, that she was, uh, that she's a reoccurring character, but there was too much sperm stuff going on, so they had to, to have something normal for the episode, so they had her move into her own house. So she moved out just to move into her own house. Doesn't make any sense at all. And then the next episode, people will forget about it, she'll be in the same house, and no one will know any different. Next, the dishwashing scene. Uh, there was the third awesome country song, but I couldn't hear anything because they were talking so much and so loud, and it kind of sounded like the singer was mumbling, too. Like, they knew what they were doing. Like, these are going to be awesome songs. Someone's going to try and listen, get the lyrics, but they just mumbled through it. So if y'all do find any of those songs out, just let me know. I even watched the end credits, and no artists or songs popped up, but the music consultant was John McCullough. So I don't know if that helps anything or if you know anything uh, special about that. But uh, the last thing I want to mention is that Holling just paid her and she went away. Like she would just come back when she ran out of money. Didn't make much sense. So that's it. Um, in all, even though it sounds like I didn't like it and I was complaining about it, I definitely want to see more. The music was awesome. The story was so was really strange, but it was fun to watch and critique. It's for sure a show to watch with friends and or in conjunction with a podcast. I hope every episode 
makes a, as little sense as this one. Like, if um, this is season four, so, I mean, I can imagine how the first season went. I guess we'll be fine. I'll be finding out, though. Um, what else did I have? Oh, I wanted to know how Holling and, and Shelly got together. Like, I bet that's, uh, I hope they explain that. I don't know if they will. And uh, I'll just be listening to what you guys think. So let me know about the country songs and all the other questions I had or whatever. Okay, that was Josh's commentary for the episode. And I got to say, he's got a lot of thoughts on country music uh, throughout this episode. This is accurate. Josh really, truly is a very big country music fan. And it is pretty specific. Specifically, the 90s country music is very popular. Like I've... uh, you know, I've joined him for karaoke oftentimes, and he'll he'll that's sort of his repertoire. And just when we're hanging out at his house, like he's got uh, his playlists like Pandora or Spotify, and it's a very specific genre that you know is very speaks very true to Josh's taste. And I guess we find some of that in this episode. I think that's hilarious because in my mind, what I'm thinking is that as soon as it hits January first, two thousand. All knowledge of country music goes away in Josh's brain. He's like, "Oh, I don't, I don't know any of that." Like, that's <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> yeah, you know, he's it's a very specific uh, era of music that he's familiar with, I guess, and you know, kind of mind-boggling, I guess, for him in this episode because uh, sort of his disinterest in, for instance, the first character, Jackie, because she's just talking over all the music. He can't, he can't figure out what song is playing, though he likes it. I will say, Josh, I don't know if I've mentioned this to you before, Josh, but because uh, we've been talking since he watched the episode, he's, he's actually started to watch the series. But um, the DVDs for the show have notoriously replaced some of the original music that was, you know, broadcasted with the, with the TV show. So when you're watching the DVDs, it might be like music that's not as popular, a little cheaper to uh, license for the DVDs. And um, there is a great resource called moosechick.com where you've got every episode listed and there usually is a pretty good track listing for all the songs in each episode. However, you know, if you're watching the DVDs, it may not correlate to the Moose Chick listing. But I can say I wasn't able to verify that these are on the DVD, but from what Moose Chick says, uh, I think some of the songs you're looking for, Josh, might be... Um, this would be in order of their appearance in the episode. Uh, I think the first song was probably Uptown Downtown by Mark Chestnut. Uh, and then you mentioned that there's like a song that sounded like it had the same singer. According to Moose Chick, there are two songs on this episode by Travis Tritt. Again, I don't know if that's on the DVD or just broadcast, but the Travis Tritt songs that were featured on broadcast at least are called 100 Years From Now and This Whiskey Ain't Working." So hopefully that hopefully that helps. It's kind of a wild goose chase with these DVDs. Uh, who knows? But there you go. And Josh, I really understand uh, what you mean by hearing the lyrics for the first time with those new headphones of yours because I think there's a couple of songs that I have misinterpreted up until I Googled the lyrics. Uh, Lee, do you have any? Yeah, I was trying to think of some after hearing Josh's uh, story about uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's. And... Well, Charles, there's, there's one that we share, so I'll let you talk about that one. But the, the only other one I could think of off the top of my head was it was like someone else who was singing the lyrics to the song, um, but they had obviously gotten it wrong. I don't know who write, who wrote the song, but it's like, 
I guess I should figure that out right now. Let me see. <laughs> it's this like pop punk. Okay, it's MXPX, the song Chick Magnet. And they just sing Chick Magnet, Chick Magnet, Chick Magnet, like over and over again. Uh, but my my friend who was listening to the song and singing along, he was he thought they were saying Chicken Nugget. So it's like Chicken Nugget. <laughs> <laughs> Which is pretty awesome. It's the main chorus, just yeah. Chicken Nugget, Chicken Nugget. Uh, but what do you get? What do you got? Uh, I think the one that we share, we've talked about this before, is that there's a band called Phoenix. Uh, we're really showing our age here because I'm pretty sure that was like a band that was really popular in the mid 2000s and then kind of fell off the uh, fell off the planet. But <laughs> they had a song called 1901, and in the chorus it says "fold it, fold it, fold it, fold it." But they're a French band, so they have a little bit of an accent, and it sounds like they're saying "balling," yeah, so like, balling, 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 balling. Yeah, it doesn't even sound like they're saying "fold it." It kind of sounds like "fallen." If you had to really listen, but uh, the lyrics on paper is "fold it" for some reason. I'm not sure what that means. I also thought that for a little bit, it wasn't very long, but for a little bit of time, I thought that "All Star Smash Mouth" in the <laughs> opening first lyrics, it says, "Somebody once told me the world." And I thought the next word was macaroni, not <laughs> it's going to roll me. <laughs> kind of wow. sounds like macaroni. That's hilarious. Well, let's see. I think the next thing Josh talks about, he brings up uh, again later, but he talks about Ed's character. Um, Ed doesn't appear, he just appears sort of like a white guy, you know, doesn't necessarily exude the traits of uh, what you would imagine a Native American person looks like. But uh you know, I don't really know very many Native American. I have, I guess if I could say anything, one of my friends is like like a huge, like a very small fraction of uh, Native American. But yeah, he doesn't, you know, exude the attributes of, you know, like an Indian and in like cowboys and Indians or something. Of course not. But uh, so, I don't, so I don't know here, like Darren Burroughs, what is Darren Burrow, you know, the actor who plays Ed, what is his ethnicity? I was looking this up earlier, and I was surprised to find that uh, Darren Burroughs' father was also a famous actor. I don't know if you've seen a picture of um, his dad. His dad's name is Billy Drago. They look kind of similar. Like they, you can oh, tell wow. it's like it's like that would be his dad, you know. But they they have a very distinct look. Um, yeah. Oh man. So so uh, Darren Burroughs, I guess, born in Kansas. So just a Midwestern vibe. But anyway, just wanted to touch on that because it's brought up a couple times in Josh's uh, commentary here. Well, I don't think that necessarily he has to go act to a stereotypical of what you would imagine a Native American would be because he is, I mean, he is an American. Yeah. Like, and he's he like, watches movies. Yeah, exactly. That's not, that's like part of his character, but it's just a color. It's not, it's, he's not like a, um, a one dimensional character that's just like young Indian guy. He's like, he's a filmmaker. He's, uh, you know, he wears a leather jacket. I don't know. I'm trying to like what was the, come up with some. What, what was the treats. sidekick of the, the the person that rides up the trains in like the 19th century? He was a good guy. Oh, the, yeah, the, the, the Lone Ranger. Ranger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Squanto, Didn't he have a, I think. Yeah, yeah. Least, it was like stereotypically offensive. Though I don't. Yeah, I don't. I'm not very familiar with that. I just know. That, I guess for some reason I know the the name of the sidekick. Y yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, that one was really bad. Uh, right. <laughs> But that's the only one I can name of, like off the top of my head. That was just like, holy crap, that's you can't do that nowadays. So we also get um, another. So our last guest on last episode compared Marilyn um, to Roseanne, and this time Josh compares Marilyn to sort of a mixture of Roseanne Barr and John Goodman combined. 
here. So yeah, I mean, there's definitely some sort of connection there. Yeah. He also mentioned that there was a, there's there's no town sheriff or something to break up the fights. And yeah. you're right. There is no town sheriff. You're you're looking at him. He's the closest <laughs> thing they got. <laughs> Wait, who who's the closest thing? Holling. Oh, he's the closest yeah. one to being a town sheriff, That's really. That's true. That, Cause he's he's well, no longer, but he was like the mayor of Sicily for a long time. Uh, but there actually is an episode where spoilers, Josh, um, where Holling loses an election, so he's no longer the mayor. Um but uh, there, at one point, yeah, he was like judge, jury, executioner. <laughs> well, there is some law enforcement that visits Sicily, but definitely no, there's not really, there's a whole episode about it, how it's like, you know, there's only like one night in the year where there's crime. So they don't really worry about um, a police force. <laughs> I forgot I forgot about that. They yeah. have like one night where they have like a mini purge. Yeah, that's, like, true. that's it. <laughs> Any, yeah, they don't, you know, they. it's not so much that they, allow crime that night but they just don't really give a care the rest of the year so they don't really have any defense against crime when it hits you know <laughs> uh so let, let's see stay on topic um another just uh, other uh actor um appearance things that that josh noticed he he mentions that chris stevens you know played by john corbett looks like Paul Rudd's like brother, like like a Saul Rudd <laughs> type of character. thought that was funny. Yeah, uh, I can see the resemblance between them. You know, I didn't think about it at first, but yeah. <laughs> so I think perhaps the centerpiece of Josh's commentary here revolves around sort of this, the come again, double entendre. It's like our opening soundbite that we used on this episode. And Josh... Uh, you know, before he kind of like explores why the joke is in the episode, he he does try to rewrite the joke, right? He uh, he has his own version where it involves uh, hauling, carrying around food samples. Um, it's it's a very dad joke, I think, uh, coming from Josh, who is also you know a father, so uh, very fittingly. Uh, giving delivering on those dad jokes. <laughs> that is, yeah, uh, I like his theory <laughs> that like they had the joke first and then they worked backwards yeah. from there. There's a similar theory for the 2011 animated film Nomeo and Juliet. Mm. So like they probably thought of the name first and then they worked <laughs> backwards from there and just wrote the entire movie. Oh wow, you know, definitely, yeah. Those I loved like Disney Channel movies too. I know this sounds like a total like a total tangent, but uh, just movies with titles that are sort of just the explanation of what you're about to, like it's the concept is just the title, you know, like for instance, <laughs> Nomeo and Juliet, uh, my date with the president's daughter. It's about, you know, exactly what it says in the title. Um, I loved those. I'm trying to think of other like Disney channel movie titles, Halloween town. It's about a town where it's just Halloween all the time. When did they make this one? What this goes along with the theme? Uh, they they had one called "Mom's Got a Date with a Vampire." Yeah, uh, have you never seen that one? No, I haven't even heard of that. I want to say I think it's in that one, uh, but I could be wrong. It's, I, I, it's, hold on, there's like a I think it's this one because there's like a very cool like Van Helsing character who is like trying to track down this vampire. Maybe it's like a side plot. I I obviously haven't seen this movie in full or in a long time. But there's a really cool like set piece where this like Van Helsing is very much like a detective and he does some weird stuff with like gunpowder or like some sort of like chemicals that he has and it like picks up the footprints of the vampire but the footprints are like 
all aflame. Like it catches the footprints on the ground, like on fire. Mm-hmm. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't even remember why. I just thought that was such a cool visual. That is a really neat. Uh, like somebody definitely thought of that, and they probably spent like an entire day filming that one scene. Oh yeah, just to the get special that effects, you know. <laughs> now I really got to see if I can track down that scene. I want to see if it's from that movie, um, or if this rings a bell, listener. Um, please write in. You know, uh, Northern Overexposure Podcast at gmail.com. What movie is that from? Um, no, yeah, yes. So the whole idea of this sperm joke, you know, it's like maybe they had that idea first and they tried to fit it, you know, the entire episode around it just to get this joke on television. I like that Josh brings up, it's like sort of like this educational loophole since they bring in Joel Fleischman with like the disease and the, you know, medicine and doctor, you know, it's very educational. So that's why they can put this, joke on air and it it still flies i think there's a similar theme in terms of religion where you can't say jesus christ at least back then from my recollection Mm. like you couldn't say jesus christ or the fcc would fine you but if you said jesus christ in relation to the actual lord that was fine so you can get around that Mm, loophole if you were directly addressing Jesus, but you weren't using his name as an exclamation. So yeah, maybe Josh is onto something right here. Yeah, I mean, if anything, Josh sort of has a point because this whole like sex and mating and, you know, this, this idea is a bit of a through line because obviously we have the sperm samples and Jackie, the bad seed, which is the title of the episode. And the mating cranes sort of fits into that like whole sex idea. Uh, but it does, you know, kind of leave out the the house hunting storyline. Um, that, that's that's not exactly in that whole through line. But, uh, you know, I mean, you, you, you have so many subplots. Well, actually, now that I think about it, that one does have – thematic similarities between the other two plot lines. I mean, Maryland's mm-hmm. buying a house plot line compared to the other two. It's kind of like a circular life and death uh, returning back to your roots situation. So mm-hmm. the, the crane lives, grows older, right. uh, has an egg. That egg starts to cycle again. Uh, man fathers child. Child grows up. Child also fathers another child. Goes up. Maryland goes, lives in a house, goes back out, and then goes back in with that same house, but w- with a new owner. So it's like yeah. a little cycle right there. No, there's definitely a lot of like migration, um, you know, theme, I guess, in this episode. I guess if of the three plot lines, that's probably the least uh, sexual one, just searching for a house. <laughs> um, but uh, let's see, what else? I would just say, um, I don't know if you have anything else, Charles, but I've got some answers to Josh's questions. Like he was, well, unfortunately we already said, I don't really know exactly what the country music might've been, but hopefully some of the clues I gave you earlier will will help in that search. But um, the network that this aired on was CBS uh, and it has never been available to stream. Um, But Josh, I think I've actually already talked to you in person about this and we're sharing DVDs right now. So hope you're enjoying season one. You'll see that, you know, Holling and Shelley, they're already together, obviously in the first episode, but there is an episode I want to say, maybe it's like in the, what's, what episode is this? But it's the one where like, we get to see like sort of the, how Holling and Shelley met, but it's from different perspectives. Like it's very Rashomon. It's like, um, like we see it from maybe 
Maurice's perspective first. Then we see it from Holling's perspective. And then we finally see it like from Shelly's perspective. And I think that's supposed to be the one that's like the most truthful. But do you remember this? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. That was in season two, wasn't it? I think so. Let me, let me, let's figure it out. Oh, it's in season three, episode two, Only You. All right. Well, there you go, Josh. Uh, once you get to season three, you'll, you'll maybe get a little more information there. But uh, I, I think just watching the first season, you can start to get, they kind of talk about the history, you know, obviously in the first episode between um, Holling and Shelling, but we, we get the real sort of like eyewitness uh, accounts in season three. Um, Charles, do you have any, any other thoughts here? Just one more. I guess um, he told us to like, share, and subscribe. Is that <laughs> like to his YouTube channel? Or like to his- yeah, I'm not, sure if, <laughs> I'm not sure if he's promoting us or promoting himself. Um, but yeah. <laughs> uh, let me see. I'll, I'll reach out to Josh and see if he wants me to uh, plug any of his socials or, or anything like that in our <laughs> episode description. Well, anyway, we got Josh's answer to the question that we've been asking our guest. Yeah, so the question was, have you ever been in a situation where you weren't supposed to be there maybe, but you've gotten something, you've gained something from it? Um, essentially, like the idea being like like the Joel Fleischman character. So like, what is that? It's such a universal feeling, universal story. Like, but what is that in your experience? And uh, Josh had some really good stuff to say. So let, let's listen to that. All right. And then this part was the question, uh, the stuck question which actually got me thinking, um, is the plot, is that the plot for the show? <laughs> like, uh, I'm guessing maybe Holland got stuck there and somehow he ended up with a Texan life, but in Canada or something like that. I don't know. I, um, this was season four, so I don't know. Um, okay. But anyway, so, um, I stuck situation. So the situation, I was at a bar in Lake Charles called Hard Rack, which isn't there anymore. Uh, and I was in college and I could think of at least like five or six things bad that happened to me there. But uh, the two that like come to mind right away when I was reading the question um, were both at Hard Rack. So Hard Rack was a college billiards bar. It had karaoke. There's like late night food, good drinks, and um, and it was just really it was a lot of fun there. But one of the things that happened was after I was done singing a song, I got off stage and sat down right by the front door. And some guy just walked over to me, spit in my face, then ran outside. I guess he was wanting a fight or something. But I never actually went outside to confront him. I just wiped the spit away and kept talking. Just realized that there were a lot of things that aren't a big deal. Which uh, I was always pretty laid back, but that was something that wasn't really a big deal. It was just spit. Could have been way worse, like if you had a knife or something, you know, just stab me and then run outside. But uh, I didn't react to that and the spit. And if you do, I learned if you do what, if you don't react right away and you do the opposite of what people expect of you, you won't get beat up and you look like the cooler guy, even though you were the one just spit on. So uh, actually... I don't know. I, I never actually knew who it was or what it was for or anything like that. But um, he might actually still be out there today just waiting for me. Like, I don't know what. If he just didn't like the song that I, I chose or what. I don't know. But it didn't bother me. So it doesn't bother me. Even though it kind of sounded like it there. The other part was... Oh, okay. So then another night. This is a different different night. I was singing karaoke again. 
and I decided I was going to sing Psycho Killer by the Talking Heads, which I'd only heard a few times. This was before streaming and downloading and sharing music was still illegal. Uh, let's see. So I got to the part of the song. So I was singing uh, Psycho Killer by the Talking Heads. Got to the part of the song where it was a full verse of French in the middle of the song. And I realized that I'd actually never heard that part before. I don't know French, so I tried it and I failed. So I stopped in the middle of the song, got off stage, walked out, and I've actually still never listened to that part of the song. So I still don't know how it's supposed to sound, and I probably never will. But I'll also never sing that song again, and I made sure that now when I go karaoke, I know the full song, and um, and that was it. So those are my stuck situations, and uh, all right, well, thanks, guys. So I just want to start with Josh's second anecdote, the Psycho Killer Talking Heads karaoke uh, number there. I've definitely seen that before at karaoke where someone will go up to sing that specific, that exact song. You know, the bridge is in French and, you know, you kind of mumble through it or in Josh's case, just, just walk off stage. Um, it's a funny idea, like a funny a funny thought of like what your stuck situation would be this like stage fright moment. But in Josh's case, you know, you, you learned, he learned that, uh, you know, if you're going to sing karaoke, know the song and, uh, yeah, I mean, words to live by, I guess. Did Josh, from my, from my understanding of what Josh just said, did he just get off the stage and then walk out of the bar? Like just I leave the establishment? Yeah. I don't know that if he, hilarious. maybe he just <laughs> went outside to get some air or maybe he just like decided I, I, I should go home now and just like left. Like, and the, the best part is like the music's still playing presumably. Yeah. yeah the so song like, still You goes. just see this guy just get off the stage and you walk him just like, you watch him walk out of the bar. He just leaves. And you're just like, oh, the is song's coming still back? going. Yeah. <laughs> I loved that. Uh, well, Charles, what did you think of the first anecdote? I think that's really true. I think that's really wise for him to not pick that fight because there was nothing to gain from that. Like, if you go over there, you go confront him, you might have, like, for five seconds, you might feel better for your pride. You'd be like, oh, man, I feel so great. I just confronted this guy. No one messes with me. But it's either going to end with that guy laughing you off or you actually get into a physical altercation, to which then, even if you win that physical altercation, you went into a fight simply because someone spit on your face. That's not... Yeah. I don't think that's really worth it for you to go into there. And, then like, you know, when you go into, like, some legal stuff and then he said, she said, and maybe that guy's going to, like, bring you to court because he, like, you know, clocked his brains out, like... Yeah, it's just really messy. So that was a really mature response by him. Just to be like, don't react to it. Just shake it off. Just, you know, it might be embarrassing for like the first couple of minutes. But then once you rationalize that the guy was either drunk or he got dared by his friends to go do that, like, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Like Josh says, it's like sometimes you might actually come out looking to be cooler, even though you just totally got spit on. If you play it cool, you know, and just kind of like super zen maybe you know uh i applaud josh for that yeah and and also yeah who who knows yeah i think you already mentioned this charles like what what was going on with that guy and 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 josh even guesses it's like maybe he's still out there waiting for me i never figured out if he was drunk or if he was maybe mad about the song that i chose um so that that's kind of wild but uh but no yeah i i think that's the right move i think that's that's sort of like our moral here that we can latch on to for this uh for this question as it pertains to Josh. 
All right, so I think we can close the book on Josh. I want to say again, thanks so much for watching the episode and putting in you know so much thought and time and effort into your responses. And thanks for those anecdotes at the end there. I really liked to hear those stories. Uh, Charles, we're going to be talking again next week about the eighth episode of season four. Uh, spoiler alert, it's the Thanksgiving episode. Can, can you guess what the title is? What the title is? Um... Giving of thanks? <laughs> I was going to say, it's an, easy, it's an easy title. It's Thanksgiving. That's the name ah. of the episode. Um, so, Charles, any, any predictions what's going to happen on Thanksgiving in Sicily? Um, I'm going to guess that it involves Marilyn and Ed, primarily. Yeah, we, got, we, we have a lot of Native American uh, representation on the show. So Yeah, some, something involving them and Chris giving some really wise thoughts on opening the land up and immigration and just being, you know, really sage. Yeah. I got to, you know, I got to say Thanksgiving is a, I appreciate Thanksgiving uh, when it's represented in film and TV, because I feel like Christmas gets all the spotlight. Obviously that's sort of like a very, uh, that's a very cinematic holiday. So I'm excited Charles for you to see this episode. I think it's a really good one. Um, but actually, sorry, before we sign off, I did want to mention this because I didn't we, – we're recording this a lot later than when we first watched uh, today's episode. Um, I did want to say the ending – once again, I know I already said this in the episode, but the ending of this episode, The Bad Seed, is awesome. It's so good. I've been listening to that Brian Eno song uh, since since we recorded. Thought I, should, <laughs> I thought I should cram that in there one more time at the end. All right, Charles, I'll see you next week. All right, I'll see you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Josh for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening. It's funny that a lot of people actually um, associate potatoes with the Irish. Um, potato soup, potato famine. Uh, they're, they're a New World discovery. Yeah, it was, uh, it was the Peruvian Indians that introduced uh, potatoes to the Spanish. Did you know that? Yes, I, I did, Fleischman. I remember Mr. Gerber's biology class. We had this fish tank in the middle of the, the classroom. And, and he, he, the man would stick his hand in up to his elbow and, and, and pull it out covered with algae. Now, this was just to get a rise out of the girls. Never forget my, my first dissection. Did any of you ever dissect a frog? I like frog. Breaded with paprika. Yeah. Tastes like chicken.